0: Well, you cannot run from it. You cannot hide from it. You cannot avoid it. Try as you may, some Christian somewhere at some time is going to offend you. (laughs) In the community of believers down here, just like anywhere else, there will be wrongs done and there will be hurts that are felt. The issue isn't if, but when it happens, how will you respond? Sometimes when believers offend other believers, these are small offenses. They require nothing more than a little patience, a little forbearance, maybe a small correction, gentle word of correction, and that's it. But sometimes the hurts run deeper. Maybe someone has broken an important promise they made to you or spread some misinformation or even slander about you or got quite upset at you even though you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe it was something even worse than that. Maybe it was a, the greatest offense has happened within your own home, in your own family, someone in your own home who hurt you and it cuts deeply. And you thought that you forgave them. But did you really? What does it mean exactly to Forgive. Are you supposed to forgive and forget as they say? What if you forgive them but you don't trust them, is that okay? What if you want to forgive them but they never acknowledge they're wrong? Is there even a limit to the number of times you should forgive somebody? For answers to these important questions, please open God's life-changing Word to the Gospel of Matthew this time, chapter 18, and we'll read verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And I'll read in the New American Standard if you follow along. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how many times, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So this slave, this fellow slave, fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Well, you know that forgiveness is one of the important themes of the Bible. Psalm 86 and verse 5 declares, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Well, God demonstrates great forgiveness. We know this. But God also demands forgiveness from us. Colossians 3.13, Whoever has a complaint against anyone... Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That is why the Lord Jesus taught a lot about forgiveness. We have a whole parable here about forgiveness. Forgiveness comes only when sin is acknowledged. In the previous section, if you look back in verses 15 through 20, the sinning brother's lack of repentance required that the church institute the process of church discipline. In this passage, however, the repentance of the brother who sinned requires that there be an instant forgiveness. In this section, Jesus chose to teach forgiveness in kind of a reverse fashion by telling us how harshly God will treat those who choose not to forgive. Specifically, the passage presents three characteristics about biblical forgiveness. And we're going to study that this morning. Three characteristics about biblical forgiveness. Here's the first one. First, forgiveness is difficult. Look again at verse 21. It's difficult. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Should I do it up to seven times? Well, this section starts with Peter's question. And in order to understand his question, we have to get into his mind. Peter has been listening to the Lord speak through this whole discourse here in chapter 18, and really the theme that unites this discourse could be called sin among the the brethren. And, And that's what the whole discourse is about. And he knows that there's going to be sin among the brethren, but he also knows there's going to be disingenuous people among the disciples who, if there's a lot of forgiveness, are going to take advantage of the other disciples if they're given the opportunity. He also knows that their offenses could grow worse and worse over time. And to Peter, the thought of forgiveness seems to leave believers in a vulnerable state. And so as Peter is absorbing all this teaching about sin among the brethren, he steps forward to ask Jesus a pivotal question. And it's really about the limit to forgiveness and how forgiveness is going to work as something that really will help if people take advantage of it. And so Peter's absorbing this teacher teaching, and he's thinking about it, and he's wondering if you forgive someone on and on and on, and there's absolutely no limit to that, won't they just keep doing more wrong? In fact, if they know that among the brethren there's forgiveness, won't that be an incentive for them to continue to wrong others and get away with it? Peter knew that forgiveness looks like weakness to some people. Many people think that if they are the very first person to give in in some kind of a dispute, maybe there's a marriage struggle that's going on or there's a dispute at work, they will be seen as the weak person and they will lose their leverage if they give in. And so to Peter's credit, he kind of personalizes this question. He's not asking some abstract philosophical question. He was anticipating what would actually happen in his relationships, so he wanted to know how many times... Do I forgive my brother? And you know why else this is such a great question? It's because we all know that forgiving someone even one time is hard. So Peter's real question was, does does forgiveness have limits? It's a great question. Just to illustrate how hard forgiveness is, think of the popular advice that the world gives concerning forgiveness. Here's one answer that you might have heard. You can forgive in the little things, but not in the bigger things. Some things are not forgivable, they say. But that's not God's Word, is it? If you are unwilling to forgive the things that really hurt, is your heart really all that forgiving in the first place? No. Then there is the advice uh, that is given the kind of you forgiveness selfishly. They advise you, go ahead and forgive others, because if you don't and you seek revenge, revenge, it's going to eat away at you. And you really need to find peace with yourself. So for your own sake, forgive other people. God's love, though, is not selfish, is it? Just look at Christ dying on the cross. Did he do that for himself? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was not therapeutic for Christ. It was rescuing for us. And then there are those who would say that you can forgive, but always use that forgiveness as a means to manipulate the person that you've forgiven in the future. I'll forgive you, but you owe me. This kind of forgiveness really just moves the debt from one bank account to another bank account and stores it to be used at another time. That doesn't even sound like forgiveness. All of this worldly advice just reminds us how hard... It is to forgive. The rabbis of Jesus' day had an answer to Peter's tough question. Jewish tradition said, forgive three times. Three times. They got that idea from a misunderstanding of verses like Amos chapter 1 and verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. They reasoned that if God punished after three or four offenses, so should they. Believe it or not, that standard among the rabbis was more merciful than other ancient civilizations who were known for brutality and not for mercy. Peter's suggested ethic climbed even higher than the rabbis. Peter wanted to demonstrate how magnanimous his heart was. He had been listening to the teaching of Jesus some, and he had progressed in his thought beyond the dead Judaism of his day, and he was willing to forgive Not three times, but seven times. Let's hear it for Peter. But was this a satisfactory answer in the school of Jesus? Let's find out. Look at verse 22. The second characteristic of forgiveness is it's not only hard, it's supposed to be unlimited. Verse 22. Let's read it again. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Well, this answer went way beyond anything in their minds. I could just picture Peter glancing back at the other 11 disciples with that look that says, guys, did you just hear that? 70 times seven? Are you kidding? Actually, if you have different translations of the Bible, you can see that there are two possible readings of this Greek term. It could be 70 times seven, that is 490 as the NASB translates it, or it could be 70 plus seven, in other words, 77 as the NIV translates it. Either way, the number was not to be taken literally, but was obviously meant to greatly heighten the number of times. How many times should I forgive? The answer is without limit. That's the idea. Jesus was not advising believers to keep little tally marks in their closet about how many wrongs someone did to them so that when they got to number 78, they could clobber them. (laughs) Like a wife keeping track of every offense the husband has against her and then finally realizes, now I can divorce the jerk. Rather, it sounds more like Jesus was purposefully echoing Genesis chapter 4 and verse 24 where in the pre-flood earth, a guy named Lamech boasted, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is avenged 77-fold. In other words, Cain is nothing. I'm much more brutal. In other words, Jesus was taking Lamech's boast of dealing out great revenge and reversing the whole thing into a standard of dealing out not great revenge, but great forgiveness. In Luke 17, verses 3 through 5, Jesus taught his disciples, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Do you know what the apostles said right after they heard Jesus say that? Increase our faith. Yes, that's how hard forgiveness is. At this point, we need to make sure we understand forgiveness and its definition. The term forgiveness in Greek, aphiemi, means to send away or to release. To forgive, to forgive, then, is not to hold on. It is to let them go in regards to their obligation. More precisely, it means to let go of their debt, their sin. It pictures you having the other person bound by some obligation, and then you loose the rope, and you let the rope out of your hands, and you let the person go free. They are no longer obligated to pay anymore. Forgiveness has three features. One, it fully releases the person from the debt that he owes. Two, it does not bring that debt back up again once forgiven, so in that sense, it is forgotten. And three, it does not harbor secret resentment or secretly plan to get even against the person. So listen, the person who continues to have anger against the sinning person has not yet forgiven him. The person who keeps bringing the issue up in conversations has not yet forgiven him. Sometimes A lack of forgiveness is even indicated by giving the other person the silent treatment or by avoiding them altogether. Given the rigors of forgiveness, that is to wipe the slate completely clean, how could we possibly forgive a person that many times? Where would we find it within ourselves to forgive someone who has hurt us that many times? That's the question and I think this question ought not to be taken lightly because it is hard to forgive and it's hard because you know that when you're wronged your rights were violated and someone else might not think it's a big deal but you thought it was a big deal and it may cost you something dear to forgive who's going to make the payment for the thing that you lost because of somebody else's indiscretion And the answer is that when you forgive that person, you have to end up paying the cost. You have to pay for it. The other person gets off scot-free. And yet Jesus said, be unlimited in your forgiveness to others. How can we do that? Well, one thing to remember is that Jesus is speaking about formal forgiveness formal, objective forgiveness of a real obligation or debt that someone owes, where the brother has come to you, and he has asked you to forgive him for something specific. And so the brother knows he's done you something wrong, and he's humbly asking you, I did this wrong, I hurt you, I see it, I was wrong, I make no excuses, I'm asking for forgiveness. Someone broke your tool, they borrowed Someone called you a name and felt ashamed for doing it. Someone was lazy, didn't do their share of the work. And they came to you and they humbly asked, forgive me. When someone wrongs us and they don't acknowledge it, forgiveness in the formal, objective sense cannot be offered and cannot be received. God does not even forgive people until they confess their wrongs, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. There is no forgiveness before confession and repentance with God. Instead, what God does is he maintains a heart of love toward that sinner until the time the sinner finally repents. And then God, who's poised and ready to show his love, formally and objectively now offers him full pardon for his sins. If you're out here and you think that God will just naturally forgive your sins, you need to know that until you come to see the ugliness of your sin and talk to God that way about it and beg Him for forgiveness, there is none for you, even with God. Even so, how can we keep a heart of love toward people who wrong us and don't acknowledge their wrong? Well, that means we're going to have to learn the heart of God for others, That means something supernatural has to happen in our hearts. Joseph learned it. In the Old Testament, after Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, he revealed to them the source of his ability to forgive them. He told them, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it all for what? For good, to save his family clan from starvation. Joseph's faith in God's goodness toward him sustained him. Through the whole time, even before his brothers acknowledged the wrong, he trusted God to make good out of evil. He trusted God to right the wrongs. He trusted that God would take care of him even when he was wrong. His faith empowered him to love before they even confessed and then to formally forgive when they did finally confess years later, years later. But Jesus here actually teaches another motivation in our hearts to be able to forgive people in an unlimited way. And that is in this parable starting in verse 23. Forgiveness is not just something noble as an attribute. Third, forgiveness is required by God. Forgiveness is required by God. Notice in verse 23, This parable is a parable about the kingdom of heaven, and those opening words, for this reason, dia tuta, link the parable Jesus is teaching to his statement about the importance of forgiveness forever. Now, before we read parts of this again, I want to make a couple of clarifications about this parable. At first blush, the parable appears to teach that God, who is the king of the parable, may actually forgive somebody of their sins and then retract that forgiveness. And if you read it that way, that is a frightening thing, isn't it? That God could forgive all my debt, change his mind, and then pile it all back on me. That's why it's important to keep in mind that with parables that Jesus taught, they were not pure allegories. In pure allegories, you can find some truth in every little detail that is in the metaphor. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to find a one-for-one correspondence to every detail in his parables. Instead, we should focus on the one or the two main points of the parable, look particularly to the punchline of the parable. Besides, we know the rest of Scripture would never agree with that. We would never read in the rest of Scripture that God retracts his forgiveness, right? Romans 8.1 says those that are in Christ Jesus have no condemnation now. Jesus in John 10, 28, promised that his sheep have eternal life, and they will never perish. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They're gone forever. So stay focused on the punchline at the end, for that tells you why this parable was spoken. It's to emphasize emphasize God's demand that we forgive. Why? Because we were what? Forgiven. Forgiven. So this unmerciful slave here does not represent a true Christian. Rather, he is a so-called brother who is exposed as not really having saving grace touched his heart. He hasn't really come to have any experience with the true love of God in his own heart. When you look at the end of the parable and you see that this slave's debt is not forgiven and he's thrown to the torturers in jail to pay it it all up, you, you understand that he is not saved. It boosts our interpretation to understand that the term brother here is referring to anyone within that external community of believers, not a regenerate, born-again person. In fact, to support this interpretation, if you look back at verse 14, Jesus was warning of these little disciples who might actually wander away from the faith and perish Some outward disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ do turn their backs on the Lord Jesus. Some of them do have stumbling blocks put in front of them, and they do wander away from the faith, but they're not actually the ones that were saved. And by the way, in the previous passage, the one on church discipline, it talks about undergoing church discipline all the way to step four, and that person that is treated that way is put outside of the community of the believers. They are called a brother, or they are... Called themselves a brother, but they're no longer to be treated as a brother. They're to be treated as an unbelieving Gentile, removed from the fellowship. The final destination of this unforgiving servant is torture, not God's forgiveness. That should be clear. If you study in the Gospel of Matthew, it never refers to torture as lovingly father chastisement. Torture is the doom of the wicked. And besides, if this unmerciful slave is a true believer, then we would be stuck with a very strange idea of a believer who has all of his sins forgiven and none of his sins forgiven at the same time. And that would be doublespeak. And so this wicked slave is just that, a wicked slave. That's what God called him. He's rejected by God. Instead, what we are to learn is the action of forgiveness must be present in the life of every true believer. Isn't that what our Lord Jesus said earlier in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer when he said, forgive us our debts as what? We forgive our brethren. We forgive our debtors. There is no minimizing this requirement of forgiveness. The parable very clearly teaches us why, and we're going to unfold this parable in three scenes. We'll go through it quickly. Scene one, Starting in verse 23, look at it. Let's call it settling the debt. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he'd begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now the king stands for God and the slave for sinful man with a great debt of sin towards God. And the court officials, even though they were nobles, and had much in assets, they were still his slaves since they were at the disposal of the king and dependent on the king for everything. This high-ranking slave either embezzled or squandered a great deal of the king's money and the king was calling in to settle accounts. And the idea of settling accounts also has eschatological overtones. It speaks of the end times when all of our life and all of the sins of life will be reckoned on God's judgment day. And this slave had an astronomically high debt. He owes 10,000 talents, talents were both of gold and of silver, and the talent, was the talent was the highest known currency in the Roman Empire. This is a huge, huge debt. And today's currency would be multiple millions of dollars, probably billions of dollars. I don't know how a slave can waste that much money. <laughs> Jesus purposely chose this high number to show man's real debt to God. It's piled high to the sky. You and I own a mountain of debt for our sins. It's so high, just like the slave here, we can never repay a debt to God. So the slave ordered, the king ordered the slave to be sold and his family broken up. How sad that is. By the way, that was fairly typical in ancient days. This was the way to get at least some payment back, although they could never pay it all back. So the slave does what you or I would have done. He begs for mercy, right? Verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He falls down before the king because he has no choice. He's in the presence of the great king, and the king is in charge, and he has no resources with which to pay. So all he can do is to fall down and beg for mercy in the form of more time. More time? What a joke. With more time, you just owe more debt. But the man is desperate. What else can he do? You can imagine the faces of those who worked in the courts of the king. They might have been whispering to each other, this guy is toast. He should have thought about all that before he wasted billions of dollars of the king's money. But the man is truly in a pathetic position. But please remember, the man stands for any of us as sinners on earth who owe God big time. And if you don't think you do, you know nothing about how God views your life. But then the unthinkable happens, verse 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The king orders him to be forgiven. This is formal forgiveness. He tells the bookkeeper, run a line through his debt. Full dismissal, full pardon, not a cent is owed. He not only doesn't get sold into slavery, he doesn't even owe anything. This is unbelievable mercy unimaginable grace. Amazing grace. (laughs) People have a hard time with God's forgiveness of others. How could God forgive someone like that? But that someone is us. And now we move to the second scene. The slave confronts a debtor. Look at verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying pay hey, back what you owe. Now, since love is, listen, love is the true indicator of whether someone is saved and born again. And since this slave was the most unloving and lacking completely in mercy, please see the, see the hy- hypothetic exaggerated extent of the lack of love here. The indication is that this slave was not changed by the offer of mercy from the king. He even took his own hands and began to choke this other slave, a violent disregard for the other human being. What wrong did this other brother do? He owed 100 denarii. 100 denarii is about 100 days wages, maybe in our money, 30, $40,000. So there clearly was a real debt owed, but in comparison, just a trifling, right? And the slave even begged for mercy as he had begged. Verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Even, he even cries for mercy. But that does not soften the heart of the unmerciful servant. The lack of love in his life is so obvious. He just refuses to forgive. Verse 30, but he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. He did not just threaten the slave. He actually carried out the revenge. No forgiveness, off to prison, pay back every last penny. And now we quickly arrive at the most important scene, which is the third, as we crescendo to the punchline. Verse 31 through 34. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. No mercy from God to this man. Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. James chapter 2. Listen, when a sinful man gets down on his knees and begs God for mercy, God is moved with compassion. That's the picture of God. How much you owe God doesn't matter. How bad your life been? Doesn't matter. How many sins you committed? Doesn't matter. But you don't know what I did. Doesn't matter. God is moved with compassion. Is that your view of God? If not, you don't have the right view of God. But when sinful man... Refuses to forgive the smaller, in comparison, insignificant, trivial wrongs done against them. When they refuse to forgive, do you know what that brings out of God? Holy wrath and anger. And that is why this man was tortured until he would repay. Not that anybody can ever repay God. Why do you think hell lasts forever? People say, why would God send people to hell forever? I mean, I just can't believe in that doctrine. You know, that's such a bad view. I mean, you guys believe in a God that sends people to hell forever. Yes, but we also believe in man who owes God forever. How are you going to pay back your sin? How are the years going to do that? You don't understand how bad your sin is to a holy God. That's the justification for eternity in hell. The point of the parable is this. God will not forgive those who do not forgive. I hope that's clear. The punchline is verse 35. That's the whole point of the parable. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother or his sister from your own heart. It better be genuine. It better be genuine forgiveness from his own heart. Why is limitless forgiveness required of us even though it's so hard? Because God's forgiveness of us is so great. His great love shown to us demands. It doesn't just teach us. It does teach us. It teaches us how to love. He loves us. We love others. We love because he first loved us. God's love instructs us, God's love teaches us. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. But God's love also demands of us that if God has so loved us, we ought to love the brethren. When we were forgiven a debt, we now owe a debt. We owe God. We owe God the forgiveness of other people it's not just something we should do it's something we must do verse 1st john chapter 3 verse 14 we know that we have passed out of death into life because and you could fill this in with we we repented of our sins and trusted in jesus right we know that we have passed out of death into life because we and there it says do you know what it says we love the brethren And then it goes on to say, the one who does not love remains in death. You're spiritually dead. You're spiritually dead. There's no love in your life. You weren't born again. You don't have the seed of God in your life. You're not born again. If you can't forgive your brother, you can't find it within you to forgive him, you're not born again. How could we be forgiven so much and then turn around and forgive so little? If we would find in the blood of Jesus the full payment for our own sins, Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins, then when others sin against us and come and ask us for that forgiveness, I did you wrong, I'm so sorry, we must what? We must forgive. It's required of us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. By way of application, I would urge you to evaluate your heart. Have you truly forgiven your brothers who have wronged you? We're not arguing that they wronged you. We're asking, did you forgive them? Watch out for your heart that pretends to forgive outwardly so you can look good to the others in your small group or so you can appear to be somebody who is a spiritual person in church, but you still harbor resentment inwardly. If you haven't forgiven, that's a serious, serious issue with you. There may be someone you need to forgive right away. If you already told them you forgave them, but you didn't, guess what you're gonna have to do? You're gonna have to go back and say, I said it, I didn't mean it. Now I mean it. And hopefully you do. Add a couple of other applications here. It is wrong. It is wrong to go to somebody and tell them, I forgive you, when you haven't even established that they've done a wrong. That's insulting. You've just insulted them when you say, I forgive them. They have to be shown they're wrong first. Do you understand that? That's why the whole Matthew 18... Steps of church discipline. I've had someone come to me and say, I forgive you. Well, forgive me of what? I didn't do anything wrong. At least, I'm not aware that I did anything wrong. Prove the sin first. You think you're being loving by saying, I I forgive you. No, you're not. That, that, That could be very hurtful. That could be very unloving. Also, you should not expect the church to forgive people in a formal way who left the church wrongly. You should not expect that who left because they were divisive, because they lied, who were removed from the church or they knew they were going to be removed from the church and they ran and they did wrong. They did wrong against the church. You should not expect the church to forgive. You should expect the church to have a heart of love and open arms ready to forgive. The forgiveness only comes when the person admits, I was wrong. I slandered. I lied. When that happens... When the wrong is admitted, forgiveness can be given, not before then. The relation... Listen, forgiveness is not about ignoring a fault. Acting like a fault didn't happen. Where would be the justice in that? When someone is wrong, they're wronged. And that has to come out. The person has to say, you were right in chastening me. You were right in removing me from the church. You were right in what you said. I was the one that was wrong. And when that happens, then forgiveness can be offered. You see that? Until that, we hold out hope. We hold out prayers. We hold out a heart that's ready to jump at the opportunity and say, of course we forgive. Of course we forgive. Come back. We love you. Nor can you say you love somebody if you hurt them and you never admitted you hurt. This happens also. Someone hurts you, and then they act like nothing ever happened, and they act like you're st- they're still your friend. There's the same Christmas card at Christmas time. No big deal, right? No, it was a big deal. If you've wronged someone, you have to go and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said those words. I shouldn't have reacted that way. I shouldn't have withdrawn. I shouldn't have judged you in my heart wrongly. I didn't know your motives, and I jumped to a conclusion about it. And then they pretend to keep on loving you. That is insincere love. And frankly, it is disgusting. It's not from the heart at all. It's a Judas kiss. Don't be like that. That's not sincere love. First go and say, I wronged you. Then send the Christmas card. Nothing wrong with Christmas cards. Hope you didn't think that I was saying something about that. (laughs) Lastly, if you have wronged someone and you have asked for forgiveness, you must remember that even if they forgive you, it may take them, depending on the situation and depending on the sin and depending on the relationship, it may take you some time, it may take them some time, excuse me, to learn to trust you again. A person can forgive immediately, but trust takes time to rebuild. And when you admit that you were wrong, you're admitting that the trust factor has been broken, and you're admitting that now you have to earn that trust back again. And if you were the one wrong, don't be unreasonable in the amount of time it takes to earn that trust back again. You know, when you're you're being raptured, you finally turn, you know, to him and say, by the way, I forgive you, I trust you now, finally. Try to be reasonable in what you expect. No one's perfect. But don't act like, hey, I went and I told her I'm sorry. Isn't that enough? It's enough for forgiveness. If she loves you out of the goodness of her heart, it's not enough for trust. Trust takes more time to build. You you can't get trust without consistent obedience and consistent action. In the meantime, we could still love those we mistrust, can we not? We could still have pure hearts even while our mind is trying to figure out what's the motive of the person, amen? We always hope the best for others. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Father, teach us thy love, not the world's love, and the greatness of your forgiveness of our heart that we might grow in this love in our own hearts. We pray it.